Well, what have we seen so far is that for all of us, for every Christian, we are spiritual. Because the same spirit of the living God is at work in our hearts and minds. We've seen that it is the same triune God that is behind every gift and that he distributes them as he chooses, not as we might wish. We've also seen that it is through the work of the same Holy Spirit that the distribution of the gifts happens to the body. No one has a monopoly on any gift. Same distributor. Different gifts, different people. With that in mind, it's now time for Paul to, if you like, bring a congregation who are divided over gifts and spirituality together and to show them why they are united in Christ, why they are one in Christ. If you don't have your Bible open, turn to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians and verses 13 and or 12 and 13, where he spells out the theological undergirding for their unity in Christ. Have a look at it with me, and as we do, count the number of times that Paul uses the idea of one and the way that that oneness is combined with the notion of all of them doing or being something. Verse 12, he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. It's true of our bodies. It's also true of the body of Christ. My body has lots of different bits and pieces. Some are visible on the outside, some are invisible on the inside. If you ask Andrew Cheer, a former doctor, he could probably name more parts of the body than you and I ever knew existed. It's true of our bodies. It's also true of the body of Christ. And the reason that it's true is in verse 13. Why is this true? For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, it doesn't matter, slaves or free, it doesn't matter, and all were made to drink of one spirit. What is Paul getting at? I want to suggest that it's nothing more than we saw in the first talk as we thought about the role of the Spirit in bringing us to Christ. All of us came to Christ, as we saw earlier, through the work of the Spirit, and he in power has transformed us. But there are some terms, aren't there, in verse 13 that to our ears can cloud and distract us from what Paul is saying. Terms like, in one spirit we were all baptised and we're all made to drink of one spirit. There are a number of Christian movements that have hijacked baptism and hijacked the work of the Spirit and read into those phrases all manner of things. They've made baptism in the Spirit an experience that comes after conversion, an experience that supposedly supercharges a Christian's experience of God's work in their lives. Friends, let me be absolutely clear. There is nothing like that being referred to in these verses at all. Nothing at all. What I want to do with you for a moment is explore these phrases, get some clarity, and I'm going to leave a number of things unsaid, and there's going to be time for questions later on tonight and tomorrow. So if I don't answer some of the things that are rattling around in your head, or I leave you scratching, well then each during question time with me a little bit later. Remember though what we've seen already in 1 Corinthians. Right? Cast your mind back. 
baptism and who was baptized by whom seems to have been one of the dividing points that we heard about in chapter 1. Paul raises, raises the issue in verses 13 to 17 and in Paul's mind, who baptized whom is of absolutely no importance whatsoever. Whereas what is in view here in chapter 12 when it comes to baptism and the spirit is of vital importance for all of us. Water baptism back in chapter 1 doesn't matter. This baptism, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one spirit, that's important. We are one body because of how we came to be members of that one body. And we came to be members of that one body through the work of the spirit, that is through baptism. But I don't think water baptism is on view here for a moment. Water baptism is only ever in the Bible a sign of something that God has already done. The Ethiopian eunuch was baptised because he'd been saved, he believed. The Philippian jailer was baptised because he believed. Baptism never saved them. The Spirit did through the work of Christ. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 12 and come and have a look with me at Titus chapter 3. And listen to the way that the Bible describes the way that God has saved us. I want you to notice the mechanism in Titus 3. If you can't remember where it is, head towards the back, go past the Timothys, and then you'll bump into Titus. As I read this, I want you to weigh it against what we've just heard read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul writes in verse 3 of Titus 3, For we ourselves are once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Sounds a lot like Ephesians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 2 from our first talk. But verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. How? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Yes, but how? How are we saved? Look what he says next. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Friends, that is baptism language. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour. And then when we remember that in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13, the word to drink could just as easily be translated as to water, I think what we have in chapter 12, verse 13, is this. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and were all watered by the one spirit. Now, it sounds a little bit odd, which is probably why they put made to drink in. It sounds a little bit odd unless we have Titus 3 and its language rattling around in our noggins. Right? Titus 3 language, the washing of regeneration or renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out on us, water imagery, firmly in our minds. If it's there, we see that it's God our Father who has poured out his Spirit richly on us, and it's through that Spirit's being poured on us that we are now in Christ Jesus, our Saviour, and are members of his body. Come back now to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. I don't think Paul is saying anything more in this other than God has saved us all in the same way, through the work of the same Spirit of God, 
And because we're all saved in the same way, we're all members of Christ in the same way, we're all members of one body, yes, there are certainly members of us, numbers of us, many of us, yes, but we are all one body. It's only once we've got that right that we're in any sort of position to think about what it means for us to be different. It's only when we see how much the same we are that we're in any position to think through the differences that we have. And let's face it, we're all very different. Just have a look at the person next to you. Go on. That's scary at points, isn't it? Because we are all very different. Those differences can be interesting or they can be interesting. Ah. Look at verse 14. He says, because you've been saved in the same way in your one body, he says, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And the evidence is right here before us. There are many of us. As I said, we're all different. I, I couldn't organise a party in a brewery. Right? Shanty, on the other hand, is an organisational machine. Right? Our musicians are brilliant. I am as musical as a house brick. Okay, I, I have, when I sing, no, I don't. When I am up the front, when music is being played, they turn the microphone off. <laughs> right? There are many of us. And as a body, each one of us is different. And yet each one of us belongs. Look at verse 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Quick exercise. Take your hand out. Have a good look at it. Come on, I need you to take it out. Have a look. Is it a foot? No. Have you ever tried eating with your feet? No. It's That, that is not a foot. No, 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 no. It's a hand. What makes your hand a part of your body? Let me ask the question another way. What would stop it being a part of the body? The only thing I can think of would be an axe or something like that. Friends, being different to each other is actually an essential part of belonging. Just think through with me for a moment the absurdity of the thought that all of us ought to be the same. To think that we all ought to be the same, to be part of the body, is just nonsense. And yet in the first century, it appears that for a number of the Corinthians, that is just what they thought. They thought that they weren't a part of the body because they weren't the same as others. Or that others weren't a real part of the body because they weren't the same as them. People felt different. They felt left out. Think for me, with me for a moment about the absurdity of feeling like you don't belong because you're different. Look at verse 17. The whole body were an eye, where were the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where were the sense of smell? Friends, every single part contributes. I'm told that even the appendix has a place in the human body, even if we can't quite work out what it does. Just because we can't work out where it fits doesn't make it less a part of the body. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you feel like you're part of the body of Christ? Do you feel like you're part of the body of Christ? I want you to write one word down in your books, either yes or no. Answer the question, do you feel like... I'm not asking what's happening up here, I'm asking what's happening in here. Do you feel like you're part of the body of Christ? One word, yes or no. 
Have you done that? Okay, next question. Why do you feel what you feel? Why do you feel like you're part of the body if you do? Why do you not feel like you're part of the body if you don't? Take a moment, jot down a couple of thoughts on paper. I need you to commit before we look at the rest of the talk. Yes or no, and then why? We're going to come back to your answers in a moment, and they'll be helpful and they'll be revealing. But before we do, we need to notice a couple of things. We've already seen, but I want to reiterate, that our gifts are divinely arranged. Look again at verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. Each one as he chose. And we know what that means. Means each one means not everybody but you. You aren't the exception. You aren't the one that God forgot. You didn't hide behind the door when God gave the gifts out. Every single one of us has gifts. And God doesn't make mistakes. Every single one of us has been placed in the body exactly as God chose, exactly as he wanted, in his right place. The question is, do you believe it? Do you believe that God has made you different? And that those differences aren't a mistake? Those differences are divinely appointed. Do you delight in being different? Do you love being you just the way God made you to be? Just the way he made you to be with the gifts that he's given you, with all of the quirks that make you unique? Or do you look at others and secretly wish you weren't quite so different? Do you wish you were a little more the same as everybody else do you find yourself shaping yourself so that you don't stand out so that you're a little less you and a more a little more them the media doesn't help us does it the media is full of pictures that tell us what attractive looks like and i feel sorry for all the rest of you because you don't look like this I mean, this is the media picture of a 49-year-old man who was incredibly handsome. I mean, the media keep... I don't understand. You're laughing with nervousness, aren't you? I can tell. But the, the media tells us what's normal. The media tells us who belongs and who doesn't. For some of us, high school didn't help either, did it? The bullies hunted down the different. They held them up to ridicule. And the pressure was always on to conform, and we haven't forgotten it. The pressure was to be the same, to fit in. Friends, so many of us as Christians have been thoroughly conditioned to want to be like everybody else. But friends, something else has happened. We've been told who the most valuable people are. We've been told what we ought to want to be. We've been told what we ought to admire in others and we've been told that being admired is good. And I think dissatisfaction with who we are is being systemically bred into us by the world in which we live. Listen to verse 19. If all were a single member, where would the body be? It's nuts to think that we're all the same. We wouldn't be a body. 
We wouldn't be the brilliant body of Christ if we were all the same. What would we be if we were all the same? We would be a mutation. We would be a distortion. We would be a hideous monster. Do you believe that? We wouldn't be a body functioning brilliantly as God has designed us to be. Verse 20, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Come back to the questions that I asked you about a few moments ago. Do you feel like you're part of the body of Christ? If you said yes, why? Why did you say yes? If you said no, why not? If you said yes, was it because you feel like you're the same as others? Because you fit in? Did you say yes because you've been accepted by others? Friends, none of those reasons are good reasons at all for feeling like you're part of the body. That's just worldly thinking. You are part of the body because God saved you and arranged you perfectly. Being part of the body has nothing whatsoever to do with others and what they think. It has nothing to do with you fitting in, in adverted commas. It has nothing to do with anything other than what God has done for you in Christ, where he placed you. If you said no, was it because you just don't know where you fit? Is it because you feel like you don't fit? Is it because others treat you like you're an outsider to the body? Again, I want to say those feelings are very real. Those feelings are very powerful. And for some of us, those feelings can be very long-standing. But they also teach us a lie. We might feel like we don't belong, but our feelings in reality just do not line up. God says we belong. God has made us to belong. We might feel like we don't fit, but that is simply untrue. God has put us in his perfect place. We might feel like an outsider, but friends, we aren't. We are part of the body of Christ and no one and nothing can sever us from him. So if I have those feelings, if you have those feelings, what's the way forward? I think that's where Paul takes us next. He shows us that we really need each other. We really, really need each other. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Try it. See what happens. I don't know if you realise this, but the French actually invented the guillotine to prove that 1 Corinthians 12 was right. (laughs) Do you believe that? I hope not. But try it. Try a head without a body. It will not last long. We really do need one another. We are totally dependent upon one another. We can't say to another Christian, I don't need you. I don't think anyone for a moment in this group here would ever walk up to a brother or sister in Christ and say, Shanti, I just don't need you. We would just never do it. But if I was to ask those who said no to my question earlier, if I was to ask who said they felt like they didn't belong and ask them why, I reckon some of them would say that it was because of the way that other Christians have treated them over time. That our behaviour communicates to others, I don't need you, to fellow members of the body of Christ. And we can do it as we fail to make room for their gifts. Because when we do that, we really just say, I don't need you. We can do it by the way that we celebrate some contributions and not others. We can say, I just don't need you. Look at verse 22 and see how wrong-headed such behaviour is. It's not only wrong-headed, it's wrong-hearted. 
Verse 22, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Friends, if we can't see how a part of the body contributes to our life together, that ought to be a sign of our, sign to us rather that there is a problem with us, not with them. They are indispensable. If we have failed to understand the way in which they are indispensable for God's plans and purpose for us as a body, that is our problem, not their problem. And we mustn't make our ignorance about their inclusion their problem. We've got to own it as ours. It's not that there's something wrong with them. God has made them part of the body for the common good. We need them. We just need to understand how, how and where they fit so that we can encourage them and engage them in serving for the common good. They are indispensable. For some of us to mentally, if you like, discard a part of the body, what that means is the whole body suffers. The body is weaker. The body of Christ misses out. For one of us to behave in such a way that a member withdraws from us, friends, is unjustifiable. Every single believer is indispensable that's got to be our mindset and it's not just up to our leaders it's up to every single one of us to act towards every other member in a way that communicates that they are indispensable we must work together to ensure that we work out how we can help and include others in the body and then honor their contribution even on those parts verse 23 that we think are less honourable. Look at what Paul writes there. He says, On those parts of the body that we think less honourable, we bestow the greater honour, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. We do it with our bodies all the time. We do the same thing with the body of Christ. How many of you went skinny dipping this afternoon in the pool? Oh, no, I'm just putting my hand up to see whether anybody else... No. <laughs> No, no, no one did, right? That's what's on view here. We cover up our unpresentable parts with swimmers. We treat them with appropriate modesty. They're less honourable, so we honour them. We honour them as indispensable parts by being modest. That's how we show how special they are, by giving them special treatment. The same is true of the body of Christ. There are some members that we might think less honourable. So to ensure that they know that they're special, we are to honour them and give them a special place in the body. We're to act in such a way that the rest of the body knows that their contribution is indispensable. What does an indispensable part of the body, sorry, what does an unpresentable part of the body of Christ look like? Well, the interesting thing is Paul doesn't tell us, he just assumes we'll know. And you know what? I actually reckon we do. I reckon that unpresentable parts of the body of Christ in KL probably pretty similar to the unpresentable parts of the body of Christ in Sydney. The key characteristic of the unpresentable parts is that we're a little embarrassed by them. That's why we cover up our private parts, isn't it? It's embarrassment. We feel awkward about them. We'd prefer to have them hidden away. Whereas there are other gifts we like to parade, we're comfortable with them, we naturally honour them. But not these. In Sydney, we honour great Bible teachers. We're a little embarrassed by those who are disabled. 
Tom Moulton was a member of our congregation at Matthias for years and years and years. Tom died just a little over a year ago. He was in his mid to late 60s. I've got to say, when we first arrived at Matthias about 10 years ago, I just didn't get Tom at all. Right? And our first day, he introduced himself as Tom the Artist. That's what his name tag said, right? Everybody else was Warwick to Jersey. His was Tom the Artist. Right? He spoke in, an, in a really awkward way. It was clear that he was disabled. He walked with a limp and he couldn't really use his right arm properly. He was overweight. He couldn't read. His parents had turfed him out with a kid when he was a kid because he was disabled. He never had a proper education. He became a Christian by watching Cecil B. DeMille biblical epics. Right? Don't ask me how it worked, but he did. Conversation with Tom was never easy. But what I saw in the congregation at Matthias, it was just so incredibly impressive because Tom was honoured by every member of the congregation. Tom was loved more than most. Tom was cared for and he was celebrated. And you know what? Over time, I grew to understand that Tom was indispensable. We'd often have question time after sermons and uh, Tom was always one of the first ones to get up and he said the same thing every time he got up. Didn't matter what the sermon was on, he never asked a question. What he kept doing was encouraging us to cling to Christ. He'd tell us how he became a Christian and when we had open times of prayer, he always prayed for the mums and the kids. Tom always testified to God's goodness in saving him by watching movies. Tom loved Jesus and he encouraged us to love Jesus as much as he did. Tom was indispensable and in what we experienced with Tom, God taught us that verse 24 is true. For you see, God has so composed the body, giving greater honour to the parts that lacked it. Why? That there might be no division in the body. But that the members of the so, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. We experience the truth of those words with Tom Moulton. So let me ask you: Who do you look at in the congregation and think it'd be easier if they weren't here over meals today? Who have you thought, well, I hope they don't come and sit with us? Well, let me put it to you in terms of chapter 12. Who do you need to start treating with the honour that says that they are an indispensable part of the body? For if God has given greater honour to those parts that are a little embarrassing, surely we must follow his lead and bestow the greatest honour on those of our members who are seen by the world usually as being the most unpresentable. For when we do, what we'll do is we'll ensure that there are no divisions within the body. So let me ask you, take a quick look around the room. Don't loiter too long on one person, they might start feeling a little insecure. But have a look around the room. Have a look at those mentally who are at smack one and smack two at home who aren't here and ask why aren't they here? Is it because they don't feel like they belong and three days hanging out with you guys would just be too hard? Who do I need to honour? How will I do it with real honour? Not something that will last five minutes while I remember this talk. 
but something that will see me change the way that I behave towards the less presentable parts of our body in Christ. What do you need to do to change your approach so that you start thinking about them as spiritual men and women given gifts by the Holy Spirit of God who have great value to the body of Christ? How are you going to do that? You have an opportunity to take it up in your small groups later on. With that in mind, we've got to ask, when you get to verses 27 to 31, what is Paul going on about? If it's been one, 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 same, 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 all indispensable, where is all this talk in 27 to 31 of first, second and thirds? If we're all indispensable, we're all to be honoured, all members of the bodies, if we're all different and there's no division, how can there be first, second and thirds? Look at verse 27. It says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administering in various kinds of tongues. I don't think we'd have any problem with verse 28 if it's simply read, And God appointed in the church apostles, prophets, teachers and miracles. It's the first, second and third bit that we really worry about, isn't it? What's going on? Well, let me suggest that verse 27 is Paul emphatically drawing all of the threads together and pushing his finger very firmly into the sternum of the Corinthian church and saying, now you lot are individually members of the body of Christ. Them's the facts. And verse 28, like it or not, God has arranged you just as he wanted, which is what he said in verse 18, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then, 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 and various kinds of tongues. God himself has ordered the body like this, as he chose. And I think the implication from the context is, you Corinthians may not like it like that. You may have done it differently, but you aren't God. This is the way that God has done it. So let me ask you the question, why the order? There are all sorts of reasons that people have speculated for it. Some have said, well, it was because apostles came first in time. And then at Pentecost, we saw the prophets, and then teachers were appointed after that, etc., etc., etc. That doesn't convince me, even though Don Carson says it. still doesn't convince me. I want to suggest that the context of the whole letter tells us everything that we need to know. And what's in view here isn't the ordering of every gift, but just a few. I want to suggest to you what we have here is apostles, prophets, teachers, and then tongues. Three numbered up front and tongues put right to the back end of the list. I think that what Paul is doing here is helping the Corinthian church understand tongues in the light of God's ordering of apostles and prophets and teaching, in the light of every member of the body being indispensable and every member of the body not having every gift. Quick question. What was Paul's point in verses 21 to 26? Every gift indispensable. God has honoured some more than others. God has honoured the unpresentable more so that there wouldn't be division in the body. Second question. 
as you've read 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through to 4, what have you discovered about Paul and the Corinthians' attitude towards him? He's the embarrassment. He's the Tom Moulton of the first century. He can't manage eloquent public speaking. Many prefer Apollos over Paul. I think that in chapter 12, verses 21 to 26, Paul, at least in part, is speaking of himself as the Corinthians see him. Remember what we saw in chapter 4? Chapter 4, verse 8. He says, already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign, that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as the last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You are held in honour, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labour working with our hands, which was a disgrace. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. Blah, 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 blah. We, says, have become the refuse of all things. It works, doesn't it? He says, I'm an apostle and I'm an embarrassment to you. But God has given me greater honour in the body because I am an unpresentable part in the eyes of some. He's done that so that there would be no division within the body, so that we'd all have the same care for one another, something that was severely lacking in the Corinthians' relationship with Paul. And as we'll see when we come to chapter 14, the Corinthians clearly thought that those who spoke in tongues were a superior breed, way above others. And I think all that Paul is doing here is reversing the order. Not tongues first and apostles last, as I believe the Corinthians thought, but the other way around. Prophecy and tongues come down. Sorry, tongues go at the end. Prophecy, teaching and apostles well before. Tongues have their place. Tongues are helpful. Tongues are useful. But they are rarely for the common good Rather, they simply build up the individual. And I think this puts tongues at the end of his list. Not off the list, but in God's ordained place, where they belong. And where's that, verse 29? As part of the body. Are all apostles? No, is the answer. All prophets? No. All teachers? No. All workers of miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. No, no, no is the expected answer. We're all different, all required, all indispensable, all ordered in God's way. But verse 31, but eagerly desire the the greater gifts. And that eagerly desiring of the greater gifts is not for your own personal use. That would be to go against the whole tenor of everything he said so far in the passage. It's not so that you can have a gift that would make you something again. That would go against the whole tenor of the passage. Rather, I think he's talking corporately. That they as a body should long for God to give them collectively the greater gifts so that they would be built up in Christ. There's much more to say about that. We're going to come back to it when we look at chapter 14. Paul will show us how this works out when it comes to two particular gifts, the gifts of prophecy and tongues. 
But before he does that, he needs to show us a more excellent way, which is what we're going to have a look at tomorrow.